0: Well, welcome to our continuing series on doctrine. In fact, this is the book that uh, we are sort of tagging into. But like I said, while we're using this as a supplement, I say this every week, uh, we're not really trying to teach this book. Our heart is always to teach this book right here. All right. To understand what God reveals to us, why it matters, how it affects our lives, and how it's all about God's glory and worship. And so uh, we've been doing this series throughout the summer, and we've looked at things like God is, and God speaks, God creates, God loves, and God judges. These are all the themes that we had noted up to this point, but today we go to this next stage, and this is a really big stage, where we look at God pursues. God pursues. And to do this, as we look at our Bible today, you've got to know we're going end zone to end zone. We're going to be from Genesis to Revelation, and we're going to see the pursuit of God. Now, when I say the word pursue, what are images that lock into your mind? When you hear that word, what are things that you inst- instantly go to that you go, oh yeah, that reminds me of that word. I mean, maybe for some of you, it's watching the Olympics right now, right? Where you see all these people, and they're in pursuit of the gold. And so everything about their life is for that pursuit. They spend years training, hours per day. There's this single-minded devotion to pursuing that medal, and so they're in pursuit. Maybe if you're really, really cool, and you think about the word pursuit, you think of Buford T. Justice, right? Go come in pursuit of the bandit, right? So he was in pursuit of the bandit. When I think about the word pursue, for me, it's really simple. I think about my wife, Ellen, because I was in pursuit, man. I was in hot pursuit, in fact. So, you know, I was in pursuit, and the cool thing was she was dating another guy, which made the pursuit all the more fun, right? So, um, you know, and I mean, I was, I was like always waiting for her when she came out of class, when she was in class, I'm like, hey, can I do your homework for you? I didn't do my own homework, right? But I was going to do her homework because I was in pursuit, and I was going to get her from that guy, and I did, and he's still bitter. Ah, all right. So, so that was pursuit, man. But the crazy thing about this word is that it has extreme polar opposites. In other words, you can be in pursuit of something that you know will fulfill you and you're passionate to have, right? So you go, I'm in pursuit of a medal. I'm in pursuit of a person. I'm in pursuit of a goal or an ambition or a dream. That's kind of fun pursuit. But you can also be harmed by somebody, angered at them, and then you're in pursuit again for something completely different. You're not in pursuit of friendship or victory unless it is retaliation victory. Because you have an enemy. And they've done something to offend you. And so no matter what, you're going to pursue your just do. See, all of this is about pursuit, because when we think about the human relational aspects of life, uh, there's a lot of bandwidth in that when it comes to our interaction and the things that we pursue in that interaction. In fact, I would say there's four basic stages in human existence when it comes to our relationships together. On one end of the spectrum, the low end, is enmity. Enmity. So we have somebody that has wronged us, and so we're in pursuit of teaching them a lesson. Or we're in a pursuit of actually removing them from the planet. If you get on a global scale, country to country, soldier to soldier, there is enmity, and so I'm in pursuit of victory by destroying them. that is one form of social dynamic that we face in our world all the way to familiar relationships where maybe it's a family member and now we have enmity with them or a former friend and now they're against us or we're against them. That's, That's familiar to us. That is how we deal in community sometimes. Now, if you can get out of that, you might get to the next level of human interaction, which is truce. Truce. And a truce isn't that impressive. We always go, oh, truce, a peace treaty. Now, what it really means is you don't shoot me, I won't shoot you. That's what it means. It means we're not going to fight anymore, but we're not tight. We're not close. We're not together. Even countries where we go, hey, we have a peace treaty with them. We're partners. We're allies. Yeah, but we spy on each other all the time. That's not, that's not necessarily tight friendship. It's truce. But we understand that's the next progression up the ladder as far as what we pursue. We either pursue enmity at times in war or we pursue truce, which is kind of a peace treaty. The third layer is going to be contract. And contract is where both parties say, hey, here's the stipulations. If you do this, I will do that. We sign on the dotted line. We both sign together. We agree. Somebody stamps it. And we have a contract. And contracts can be in business. They can be in general life. They can be for work, whatever it is. But we're familiar with the idea of a contract. And that's how we handle some of our social interaction. But by far, the most profound, the most endearing, the most important to us is what we call covenant. When you cross into covenant, you're in a whole new world, other than enmity, or other than truce, or other than contract. We know in covenant, you're in sacred space at that point, because there's something about a covenant that is way deeper, way more binding than the other aspects. In fact, in, in, in most cases, there's very few covenants we actually take in life. Most of us, if you're married in this room, you're familiar with that covenant that you've made. And if you think about what makes that covenant interesting, is that you stood up there with some pastor or priest or whomever, and they said, do you promise to love, honor, and cherish for better or worse, rich or poor, sicknesses and health, as long as you both shall live? And you said, yes. What's interesting about that covenant is it didn't have a clause that says, provided they do the same. It was never there because the essence of the covenant is I am agreeing to this and I will do this regardless of whether you reciprocate. See, that's actually what people pledge. Now they don't always live up to that and they kind of go, oh, were they vows? I thought they were kind of like general stipulations that maybe if it worked out good for me, you know, but they were meant to be vows, meant to be a covenant. In fact, in most Marriage vows for covenant, there's only one caveat often in there that says, I will do all of this provided that you forsake all others. That's usually the only caveat. Other than, I'm going to do this. Whether you're a punk or you're great or whether you're rich or you're poor, I'm going to do this. That's covenant. I'm all in. If you've served in the military, you have been a part of covenant. You raised your hand, you swore in, and you said, I will defend the Constitution of the United States. That's a covenant. So rarely do we actually give covenants in life, and in part because they are so sacred and so valuable and so important. We realize that when you state a covenant, it is binding, it is lifelong, it may even be eternal. So when we then talk about God pursues, we're talking about the reality that God pursues through covenant. Not simply through contract, not through truce. Even though we are at enmity with God until he touches us with covenant, God pursues with covenant. Now, typically, like in the New Testament era, the Roman dynamic of things, uh, they used the word synthecy to describe Covenant. And you can can even look at that and go, oh, that's a little bit like synthesis. It's the idea that two parties would sit down together and say, hey, we're going to make a covenant. I agree to this. You agree to this. Uh, Here's how this is going to play out. And if you violate it, I can do this and vice versa. And it's this agreement together, right? That's typically a covenant in the Roman Empire. But the Bible uses a very different word. It uses the word where we get words like diatribe. In other words, when God makes covenant with humanity, he doesn't sit down with us and say, all right, let's come up with the agreement. What do you want? What do I want? What will you do? What will I do? All right, we're going to synthesize this together and have a covenant. No, God just says, here's the covenant. Here's my diatribe. This is one directional. I set up the boundaries. I make the rules. I uphold the covenant. That's it. We don't barter with God. We don't dialogue about, well, you know, I don't know. Can I have Christmas off? I mean, you know, none of that. God just says, here's the rules. But here's the great thing about that. If God didn't do that and said, all right, let's just do a contract based on what all parties deserve, we would be hosed. We would be radically hosed. And so God, in his love and in his grace, says, I pursue in covenants. I cut the covenant. That's literally the way they spoke. Cutting the covenant. Cutting the covenant meant you would take an animal, cut it in two, have the blood and entrails running into a trough between the two pieces. You would walk between it and say, if I violate this covenant, may my life turn into what these animals are. Ripped in two, bleeding out, and gutted. Well, God is so committed to his purposes. He says, well, I make covenant. I'm saying, may I be ripped in two and do this if I don't fulfill covenant to people that aren't necessarily even going to do what I seek of them. In fact, what you'll begin to see throughout the morning is that covenant for God is deeply rooted in grace. Grace is a great word. And we need grace in covenant, because again, we are not deserving. We incited enmity, but God pursues in covenant. Now, part of this is kind of connected to how we were originally made. God made us in covenant, right? So if we go back to God Creates a couple of weeks ago, we see that God actually established us and created us in covenant back in Eden. Now, what this was called was the Covenant of Works, Alright, so if you're a little theological-minded person and you go, Alright, I don't want to write these down. The first covenant you will come across in the Bible is the covenant of works. Now, uh, you hear that, you might go, Wait, I thought works was bad. We're not saved by works. Why would the first covenant be the covenant of works? Well, Adam was not saved from sin to salvation, right? So he didn't need grace and then from that had fruits of work that came from grace. No, Adam was made sinless. Adam was good to go. So God makes Adam, puts him in Eden, and says, uh, here's my covenant, I want you to go work. It's good works. So it's like Adam's existence in Eden right off the bat like your first day of school. As a student, I loved the first day of school because you know what I knew? I had an A plus the first day. I mean, I, I remember one teacher said that one time. They're like, you all have an A plus. I'm like, sweet, that's the first one I've ever had. And then, and, and then she's like, but now you must maintain that. I'm like, ah, it's going to go bad, right? So, but for Adam, he starts with an A+, and he's given a covenant of works, and really all he has to do is maintain the A+, and we'll see later what that looked like. But it wasn't that hard, really. But God establishes a covenant, and even though the word covenant doesn't appear in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see in Hosea 6 where God says he made a covenant with Abraham, or with Adam, that Adam broke. So what God does in Genesis 1 and 2 is covenant. And here's the conditions of the covenant. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So this was part of the covenant. Right? You're in Eden, you're to care for Eden, but you're to go and subdue the earth as you watch over all of creation. Then you get to chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord God put man in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded him, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you will surely die. Right? So here's this one aspect To God's covenant. He says, here's the deal, man. I'm giving you everything. You get to go do these things. It's going to be bliss. But there's one single thing. And and this one single thing, it's not a huge deal. I mean, think about Adam's existence. Here's Adam. The first thing, he just gets to stroll around naked and nobody cares. You can't do that today. People care. In your own home, they even say, dad, put on your boxers. You know I mean? you You can't do that. But he can totally do that. And the other part is he was fit. That's why my kids are like, no, put everything on because you're not fit. All right. But Adam was fit and Adam was brilliant and Adam had never made a mistake. He carried no guilt. He had no burden. He had no shame whatsoever because everything was just bliss for him. And if Adam had any lingering questions whatsoever, you know what he had to do? He just had to wait till three o'clock when God showed up. Uh, I was curious about this. Right? So this is the ideal setting. Everything is bliss. This is basically a nudist Disneyland, is what Eden is. It is awesome all the way around. You can eat of any tree. You can just hang out in the sun. You get to take care of the land, but it doesn't grow weeds and it doesn't fight against you and it's all domesticated by God's glory and grace in Eden. Now, you have to push out the boundaries, but I've given you everything you need to have dominion. To win that advance every time. Right? It's great. He says there's just this one thing. One tree. All creation is for your dominion. There's one tree. You have an A plus day. One. But there's just one thing. See, I think about this like if we were to see Eden like Disneyland. And you walk through the front gate. And God says, every ride is yours. All the food stands, totally paid for already. You don't have to dish out $37 for a pop. You, all paid for. Everything's set up. You could go stay in the hotel. It's totally paid for. He says, but there's this one thing, you know how Main Street goes down and ends up that big circle. And in the middle of that big circle, I place one thing. I place this little teeny tiny lane toy. Just this one thing, just little just you know, like oh man, it's it's not even fancy. You go to Vegas, these are cool. You know, here a jackpot, woo. But it's like God would say, okay, so the whole Disneyland church, but this one thing is there at the end of Main Street, and, and, and just don't 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 partake of that. I mean you can go on Space Mountain. You can do the Indiana Jones ride. Just this. See, when you simply take that, you realize then the magnitude is kind of crazy Or it's like, let me get this straight. I, I, I have stress-free life. I've never made a mistake. You give me everything I need. I just don't have to partake of this. But that's tempting because you told me no. As soon as we're told no, what do we want to do? Ooh, it's got a red knob, right? What happens if I pull it? What's it going to do? Is it going to spit money out at me? I bet it spits money out at me. Yeah, like dimes, which are worth like pennies now, alright? So, you know, but that's the conditions of Eden. And it's in that set of conditions that Adam and Eve, they decide, no, 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 Disneyland's awesome, but I just, I just got to go to the end of Main Street and try this out. And that brings the fall. Right? Full-on rebellion, the fall. I, we call it the fall. I, that's its technical term in theology. It's a rotten term because uh, it's showing we fell from God's image. But more importantly, it's rebellion. It says, God, we walk with you every day. We see your glory. We see your provision. You've given us everything. But we wanted this little jackpot toy instead. So we pulled the knob and we rebelled. And everything blows up in their face from that rebellion. And you see the deterioration really quick, right? Because you see in the text, it says, then the Lord took the man after he puts him in Eden. And he says, man, what's what's going on? What's with the rebellion? And Adam says, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to explain this. It was a woman. And you know, you know, when God says, what's going on? As soon as Adam said, it's the woman, you know, Eve did that whole, like, oh, really? You know, like that? Like, he's pointing at her and she would, Shh, like, you're going to die if he doesn't kill you. And then, and so then, God, you know, Adam's like, her, that you gave me. And And notice Adam's double blame. It was the woman. Oh, she's going to kill me. That you gave me. Oh, now you're going to kill me. But that still goes on to this day. I mean, the very essence of our sin is not my fault. It's my upbringing. It's my environment. It's the other stupid people on the five that make me flip them off. Whatever it is. Or, it's your fault, God. It's your fault for not doing this for me. For uh, allowing evil in the world. For creating all of these problems. We just still keep doing this. And so they do this. They all do this. And so there's this consequence. And God says to the devil, you're a bottom feeder. God says to Adam, you know what? You're going to work, but you're really going to be worked over. And to the woman, he says, oh, man, you know what? Childbearing was going to be like a day at the spa, but not anymore. You know, like pain, suffering, confusion, infighting among couples. All of that happens because of the rebellion, the fall. And this is in our DNA, this is in our nature, this is in our nurture. We are just sinful. Think about your first sinful act. You kicked your mother. You were in the womb, but you kicked her. And you come out screaming, and then you come out saying no. Your first words, mommy, no, right? So, we rebel, we're sinful. That's our problem. That is the condition, that's a circumstance. But here's the great thing about this. you got to understand the bad news. The bad news, we are not God's friends. I know some people don't like that. You know, God is love. He loves us all right from the womb. As we grow up in life, God loves us and wants us to know. God has a love-hate relationship with us. We are enemies of God, too. And we do our own thing, and we care about our own ways, and we don't care about His ways, and that's the problem, and that's the bad news. But the good news is, God always had a plan. God always had a plan. There's this covenant of works. It's the first covenant you see in Genesis. But it's actually not the first covenant that the Bible describes. Because the reality is, is that before God pursues, God pre-sued. He pre-sued. And we call this in theology, the covenant of redemption. And this is not a covenant that God makes with humans, The covenant of redemption is a covenant that God makes within himself. In fact, I have a definition on the screen. It is the eternal, intertitarian agreement between the Father, Son, and Spirit by which the Father elects to save, the Son gives himself for salvation, and the Spirit applies all salvation's effects. So, the Trinity makes a covenant within themselves. It so says, we set out to create, we're going to create one day when we create time and all those other things, and in that, we, in and of ourselves, make an agreement to redeem that which rebels. That's the covenant of redemption. This is why in Ephesians chapter 1, you see that described, it says, In Him, God the Son, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, God the Father, who works all thing, things out according to the counsel of His will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. God the Spirit. So the Trinity, way back, said, man, we're going to redeem. Before Adam was ever made, we're going to redeem. And so it was a pre-suit of God. But then with the pre-suit comes God's Pursued, where God pursues in covenant. Because while we had enmity and we were fighters of God, God says, No, 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 I'm going to show grace anyway. Grace will trump enmity. Now, again, go back to it. Have you ever been thoroughly betrayed in your life? Have you ever had somebody all out want to offend you? And was your first response going, Man, I really want to win them over and pursue them in positive ways? Now, if anything, it was, I want to avoid them, or I do want to pursue them to give them the right hand of fellowship with my fist, right? So, that can be the heart. But God says, no, I'm going I'm to pursue. I'm going to let covenants win over enmity. And that is the covenant of grace. There was the covenant of works, but before the covenant of works was the covenant of redemption. And the covenant of redemption plays itself out against the backdrop of the covenant of works with the covenant of of grace. Now, you notice there on the screen, it says covenant, and then it has the F S in parentheses there. Uh, and that's intentional because in one sense, we're talking about a single covenant and another sense, we're going to see a series of covenants embedded into that. We're going to try to walk through all of those this morning as quickly as we can. And we're going to start with the covenant of grace to Adam. The covenant of grace to Adam. Now, again, you look at the text and you know that there was enmity. God comes in. Where are you? Adam says, We're hiding because we realize we're naked. Imagine that moment. They eat the fruit. They look at each other. Something's changed about you. What's different? We're sinful. And so they cover, they hide, they're shamed. And then God steps up and he says, what do you mean you you hid yourself because you're naked? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now again, rhetorical question. God knows the answer. I mean, it's very, very clear to him. But they're freaked out. Now, what was the penalty for pulling the knob? He says, you will die. Remember that back in chapter 2? Because God says, if you do that, it's over. You're going to die. So in verse 11, God says, what do you mean? Who, who told you? You ate of the tree, right? What's God's response? Verse 12, and so God popped the cap into Adam and Eve's naked butt and on the spot into the human experience. That's what it says, right? Is that what it says? No, it's not, it's not what it says. I love rewriting the Bible only to say, really, it's, I'm kidding. Um, it's not what it says. Actually, what we see is God pursues in covenant. Through grace. Verse 21 says, Then the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. See, right there is grace. God says, If you do this, you're going to die. They did it, and so God doesn't roll in and say, All right, done, done, moving on, restart, going to Mars, you know, whatever he could have done. No, God says, um, Well, My father, or father, son, and spirit. God says, my son and and, and spirit, we we got together to solve this problem already. And so I will apply grace. I, I will clothe you instead of kill you. But understand, as God clothes Adam and Eve, in there, there was sacrifice because, again, animals had to die to cover them. So never lose sight of the fact that in covenant, with God's grace, there is forgiveness, but there's sacrifice. So you see this in the very first implementation of grace. You are covered, but something else suffered in your place. Something else died to cover you. Tragically, this doesn't fix the whole problem, because again, there is still consequence for their offense. Even though God pursues, there is consequence. And so Adam and Eve, they leave Eden. They're not allowed to come back in. They have two sons. There's a family murder in the equation in chapter 4. A little while after that, there's another guy who gets attacked by youth on the road. So he kills them. So retaliation. uh, Again, not necessarily murder, but killing because, again, the world is getting more corrupt. Uh, That's chapter 4 also in Genesis. And then you get to chapter 5 in Genesis. And you see this lineage of people. And the lineage is all the same. There was so-and-so, and and he died. So-and-so, and and he died. So-and-so, and he died. Consequence. Right? Consequence in family. Consequence in community. Consequence with the human body. Consequence. But it is in there that we see God begin to act. It leads to the next covenant, the covenant of grace to Noah. To Noah, now in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6, says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention and the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from where I have created, from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, he's looking at the whole planet. He says, they're all wicked. They're all bad. Is there one exception? Is there one? You're looking at me going, that's a trick question, right? It is a trick question. Because if you said, well, there was one that was righteous and his name was Noah. You went to a bad Sunday school. Noah is not a righteous man. Man. In fact, this is the thing you have to understand about God pursues, right? Sunday school jacks kids up sometimes, and this is the story they do it with. Because it makes it sound like, you know, it all were wicked, but then God found Noah, and he was good. And because he was good, God chose a good man. No, Noah was just as jacked up as everybody. He would have been just as wicked as everybody, which is why verse 8 says, but Noah found favor, in Hebrew, literally grace in the sight of the Lord. That doesn't mean that he earned God's grace. It means that Noah was an evil guy, just like everybody else was evil, but God pursues in grace. Not good people, but bad people he then makes into good people. And so Noah's just chilling, probably just as pagan as everybody else, just a wicked old man like everybody else is wicked, but God says, I'm going to work through Noah. I'm going to pursue in covenant with Noah. So Noah, you found favor in my sight. I give you grace. And then only with that grace, then it says, then Noah was a righteous man, right? Blameless in his generation. Not because of something in him, but because of what God had done in him. He pursues in grace. So God says, it's coming, man. Judgment's coming. I've chosen you in grace. I want you to build a boat out in the desert. Everybody's going to point, laugh and mock, just do it. Because a flood's going to come and I want you to load up your bad wife and your bad kids and your whole zoo and I will destroy. And so God lays waste to the entire planet. Flood is the judgment. The judgment. But then the flood subsides and the boat lands on Mount Ararat. And what is the very first thing Noah does? He gets off the boat and he sings a very different song than the current one. He sings, I'm sinful and I know it. And he builds an, an altar and he sacrifices in other words god says man i have touched you with grace i have pulled you out of a wicked generation and i have saved you and you have seen my judgment and noah says yes i have seen your judgment and i am a sinful man so i sacrifice again sacrifice judgment grace they're all in these covenants and so he sacrifices and in the context of this, God makes covenant with Noah. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your seed after you, as with every living creature that is with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood, and never again there shall there be a flood that destroys the earth. He says, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, that it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and And the earth. And so, man, God sets up a covenant, not only with Noah, but with creation. There's an ecological framework to this and an anthropological framework to it. It says both are important. Now, why? Go back to Eden. Both were important, right? Humanity and creation mattered to God. Humanity and creation are affected by sin. So God then goes to Noah and says, listen, I'm making a covenant with you and creation again. Right? In his grace. So God gives grace to Noah. Now, does this mean that it all levels out? No, Noah's still under sin. And so, a little while after the story, Noah makes some bad decisions, totally gets drunk in his tent one day, laying there naked. His son comes in, makes fun of him. He goes and parties like a pagan, and the world goes south again. Right? So, God redeems in grace sinful people who still have consequence, who go out and sometimes do sinful things. So again, God initiates. This time, a covenant of grace to Abraham. To Abraham, right? And, and, and here's the, the really cool thing about this. Um, Joshua 24.2 And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Neor, and they served other gods. Alright, so what does that tell us? Adam, right, uh, flashing pervert, rebel, God shows grace. Then Noah, that guy is a wicked old man, God shows grace. Abraham, not only worshiped other gods, understand how you worship gods in that culture. You killed babies to worship other gods. If you go, Abram was a pretty good guy, he was just worshiping other gods, which by that he was just burning incense at a temple, then you don't understand the pagan notion of worshiping other gods in his day. There's a very high probability this guy would totally applaud the sacrifice of babies for the sake of their gods. So, once again, God pursues in grace a very unlikely individual. And it's grace. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor you uh, when I curse. And him, him who dishonors you, I will curse, rather. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so he says, you know what? You worship other gods, but in my grace, I pursue you. And I pursue you, and I bless you so that you can bless others. So, human race, sinful. Human race is judged. The human race goes off rails again. So God comes to Abraham. Abraham. And he says, I want to bless you to bless others through covenant. And so in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, it says, I will establish my covenant between you and me and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your seed after you, right? It's an everlasting possession. So God makes covenant. God pursues. And the way this covenant is displayed... And Genesis 17, as it goes on, as he says, you know what? Uh, you need to be circumcised. You and all the males of your household. Poor Abraham's like 90 years old when that happens. Ouch. Right? I mean, drag. And you go, why? Like some people, like if you read critics of the Bible. They're like, what is this fascination with this region of the body and God wanting to circumcise? I'm like, because it gets in a lot of trouble. I think that's why. Um, It it sends things on trajectories. So I think God chooses that for a lot of reasons. But one is, it's connected to blood. It's connected, again, to sacrifice. And so there is always sacrifice in relationship to sin. Something needs to be addressed. Something needs to be made right with God so that things can go right with God. Now, did Abraham have it all figured out? Once again, no. No. He did not always do well, even though he was chosen by God, saved out of his paganism. God makes covenant with him. What's he still do? Does he trust God all the time? No. He goes to other places. And when they say, who's that lady with you? He says, she's my sister. Right? When it's his wife, you know, but he's, ah, like, oh, she's my sister. And then they can't have a baby. So his wife actually comes and says, you should sleep with the maid. And he says, that's a great idea. Don't ever say that's a great idea to your wife if she says that to you because she's medicating and she doesn't know what she's saying because your wife is not going to say, hey, go do this. But she does and he does and then she's mad like, why did you do this? He says, you told me to sleep with the maid, now you're mad. And they create the greatest tension the world has ever known from that, right? The child of the maid is Ishmael. It's why you have to take your shoes off at the airport today. That's why. That is the Arab nations. That is that whole group that hates the Jews. That's Ishmael. And then, of course, Isaac, the Jews. Right? We still experience the problems to this day because this guy's like, okay, the maid's kind of cute, my wife said, so I'll go do it. It's not good. So he didn't always play well. And sin multiplies again, even though God shows grace and covenant. So how does God respond to this? I mean, by now you could start to think like God would be like, enough, I'm done. I did Adam, he blew it, I did him again. And I did Noah, and he blew it. So then I went to Abraham, and he blew it, and I still... But God keeps going, and he brings covenant to Moses. Covenant to Moses. So here's what it says in Exodus chapter 2. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law. Now the question is, why was Moses doing this? Well, because basically Moses was a cop-killing fugitive. Go back to the story. Moses sees one of the officials that oversee the slaves of Israel uh, beating a slave, and so Moses steps in and kills him. That's like killing a cop, basically. And he's like, oh man, now I'm going to die. So he goes, and he runs into the woods, and he's there for 40 years. He's just a fugitive on the run. So at this point, he's just chilling, keeping flocks of sheep, because He's hiding out because he's not a good guy. And yet, in the context of that, God pursues in grace. It says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, and God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place that you are staying on is holy ground. Again, notice, Moses wasn't out there one day. He's like, man, I really feel like there's something out there. There's probably one true God related to my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham. I really need him. No, he's just walking along, sees a bush on fire that isn't consumed, and God says, Moses, I'm pursuing you. I'm drawing you out to use you. Now, what's interesting about Moses' calling in this is it's connected to Abraham's. Because that's what God says, right? He says, I'm the God that appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I didn't show myself as the Lord to them, but they understood the whole nature of the covenant. And I'm hearing Israel, and they're in bondage, and they're suffering. And so I want to call them out and bring them to a land based on fulfilling the promise I made to them. That first covenant where I pursue. And so the way that God is going to then do this is to kind of do some course correction. To put Israel back on the rails a little bit. And so he does it through the covenant of grace to Moses in law. In law, right? So they you know, leave Egypt. They're out there in the desert. They get to Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, verses 2 through 5. And there God says, I'm making a covenant with Israel. Now this is a different covenant to the one made to Abraham. But it's not a contradictory covenant. It's a covenant of law that says, I need to get you back on track. You were going down the road of what I promised to Abraham, and you've ended up in Egypt, and you've ended up kind of pulling up a lot of their stuff as far as the the trash that you can kind of embed, and I need to have you see your sin, so I will establish the law. And the law is going to do two things. First of all, it's going to be a lot like this. It's going to cause you to go, man, I am sinful because I do want to touch it. I, I want to violate law. But the other thing is there's a lot of sacrifice. In the law. In other words, super sinful, you all are, but you need sacrifice. You need something to forgive it. And so God gives grace to Moses through the law to Israel. Now, does it work? No, Israel still got problems. Moses is still fighting with them. No sooner do they leave Egypt. Are we there yet? Right? no, I don't want Panera Bread. I want KFC. I mean, that's what they were doing. You know, I mean, really, they're just like complaining. You know, all the time, I hate our new house. I like our old house back in Egypt. That's what I want. Moses is like, I'm going to pull this camel over if you don't stop. You know, like, so, just, just like children. So Israel doesn't do what it's supposed to do. In fact, over time, they just go full idol love and tilt, man. Just idols again. And again, God pursues. This time, God pursues through a man who is a very violent, sometimes perverse man that we know to be, David. But it's to David that God brings covenant. Psalm 89, 3 and 4. He says, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now again, how did this start? Was David out there in the field one day? And he says, you know, I really feel like I, 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 I'm I going to call upon God. Or did God pursue David? Well, we see that God pursued David. It says, now therefore, you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I mean, you go back to the story, it's like, um, when the prophet rolls in, it's like, hey, I'm supposed to anoint the new king of Israel. They don't even go and get David out of the field, because nobody thinks he's the guy. Here's my other sons, don't you have another one? Oh yeah, David, whatever, little David, he's out in the field, he's following the sheep. Right, The least likely guy. God says, that's the guy I want to use. I pursue him for covenant. And so as you read the text and it says, here's the nature of the covenant that God is going to raise him up to secure the people of Israel, to give them safety that violent men will not afflict them anymore. It goes into verse 11. He says, man, I gave you judges over Israel and, and you were supposed to find freedom from your enemies, but that didn't work out. So I'm going to establish in you a kingdom. That will continue forever. That's the promise given to David. Protection, prosperity, presence. All because God pursues. But again, David was like Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses. They were all a mess. They were a mess before God pursued. And they continued to be a mess even after God had pursued them. And therefore, they all radically and desperately needed sacrifice and needed grace. But see, the crazy thing is that for all of these different individuals, they were all a part of the great plan. Right? There was a great plan unfolding. In fact, a lot of times, go ahead and bring up this next slide. We look at this stuff and we kind of go, it's like a shotgun blast of names. Oh yeah, Adam and... Noah and Moses and Abraham and David and they all were doing stuff in the Old Testament. What starts to help us is if we actually bring dots up along all of those and then we connect our dots and you begin to see that God is up to something in that and then you need to connect another set of dots go and bring that next one up and you notice that what's going on is that there are two things in play. One is this trajectory of redemption that's the red line where God starts something with Adam, carries it to a higher degree with Abraham, and it's going to go somewhere, but then the other things are course-correcting. So God says to Adam, here's how things are going to go down, but then people get wicked and sinful, so God goes to Noah and says, let's course-correct it, right? Gets it to Abraham, gets to Abraham, people go sideways, so God goes to Moses. Let's course-correct it. It's course-corrected for a while, but it's still not going right, so God goes to David. Let's course-correct it. But the big idea in all of it is that all of this covenantal stuff leads to Jesus. It all leads to Jesus. That is always the trajectory of all of these covenants. So they're not God's reactions. Like, oh, oh, I know I said this, but now I say that. I take it back. No, God is using these two different lines to bring forth what we call the new covenant. The new covenant. In fact, you see the echoes of this covenant in Jeremiah 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant of law that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. I love that. Even though I did this, even though they broke it, I still fulfill. Because I said, I do. I do. They don't most of the time, but I said I do. So he does. He says, for this is the covenant I will make of the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write on their heart and I will be their God and they will be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See, he says there's a new covenant coming. Now you fast forward to Luke chapter 22. It says, when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at the table and all the apostles with them. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took the bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, he said this, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So, back in Jeremiah, God says, listen, there's a plan. It's unfolding. A new covenant is coming. And then Jesus, there at the Passover, blows their mind and departs from the Passover speech altogether and says, I'm the new covenant. In God's grace, but with sacrifice. My blood will be the sacrifice. My blood will accomplish this. So all those other covenants, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses... David, they lead to Jesus. They all lead to Jesus. The other crazy thing about this is that he is embedded into every one of them. They all point to Jesus. They all point Jesus out inside the covenants. I'm going to go through this really quick so you see the big picture, right? But Jesus is the foreseen seed. If you were paying attention to all the verses we looked at, you would see the theme, all right? So go back to Genesis 3.15. God says, listen, there is coming a time. Where there will be a seed from the woman. And Satan will seek to stop him out and he will destroy the serpent, right? I will put enmity between, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It says, man, there, there, there's this promise right there in Genesis 3. That Jesus is going to do something. It's just buried in there. Well, then you get to the New Testament and you see the covenant of Jesus' grace to Adam it says therefore the children uh, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he Jesus himself likewise partook, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death that is the devil he says you know what he's going to get your head someday he's going to beat you someday
1: you played this great
0: game in Genesis three but he will come. He will come and he will deal with you. And it even says, one day uh, we will soon crush Satan under our feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Love the way. He'll crush you and the grace of the Lord. You know, it's like, love that. But it's a fulfillment. Points out Jesus. Think about the covenant of Jesus' grace to Noah. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons, With them, behold, I shall establish my covenant with you and your seed after you. Then you fast forward to Romans chapter 8. And Jesus comes into the world and redeems us. And in that redemption of us, he also plans to redeem all of creation. Because he's the seed that carries through. You see the covenant of Jesus' grace to Abraham. When God tells Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout all their generations for an everlasting covenant. Then you go to Galatians 3.16. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one. That is, to your seed, who is Christ. So, Abraham, or to Adam rather, there's a seed that will destroy the serpent. To Noah, there is one of your seed who's going to be a part of this redeeming covenant. To Abraham, to your seed, who is Christ. You see, the covenant of Jesus grace to David. Where the promise was, I will raise up after your seed, one after you. Right? There's the seed idea again in the covenant to David. Then you get to Revelation twenty two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for the churches. I am the root and the seed of David. And even to Moses, Jesus is embedded as the seed. Not literally as the law, but... Rather, he was the seed promised to Abraham, but the law was added, it says in Galatians 3, because of transgression until the seed should come to whom the promises were made. And if you go into Galatians three twenty-four through 26, it says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Again, I know we're trucking over a lot of ground, right? End zone to end zone. But I I say all of this so that you see there is this continuity of story, continuity of covenant. Right? It wasn't like God is course correcting and went, oh, the Old Testament isn't working, I need a New Testament. Oh, these other guys weren't working, so now I need Jesus. It was always choreographed. It was always understood. It was always predetermined that this is how it was going to go down because God was pursuing in grace very sinful people. And now in Christ, we have received that grace. We have received it. And so when we reflect on God's covenant, first of all, Covenant displays that God hates sin. God hates sin. Every one of those legs had sacrifice. Every one of those legs had God saying, you know what, I need to punish sin, but I will create a substitute until the ultimate substitute. God hates sin. The second thing is that God pursues sinners by grace. By grace. Nobody in that cast of characters were good people. Most of you in this room are better people than the cast of characters that God established every covenant with. Right? He just picks sometimes the biggest dirt banks. But we're not all that great sometimes too. And we need grace. Third, God solves our sin problem personally. right? So whether it was the animals to cover Adam and Eve, uh, whether it was the sacrifice that Moses or, uh, that Noah made after the flood happened, whether it was uh, the sacrifices that Abraham engaged in, or Moses or David, all of those were blankets until God could take everything under from underneath the blanket and put it on Jesus and pulverize him. God solves our problem personally by being both punished and punisher for us. But he does that so that we can pursue the God that pursues. He does it so that we can pursue the God that pursues. And, and I, this is a really important thing. Because again, when, when you look at all of this, when we realize the nature of offense, right, the potency of our rebellion, all the more we should be like, wow, God pursued in grace time and time and time and time and time again. I want to respond in gratitude. I want to respond with actual focus. And so I close with just a handful of personal questions. And here's the personal questions. Would you say as you look at your life that you pursue, on a daily basis, the God who pursued you? Do you pursue the God that pursued you? If you said yes, could you prove the God is first with your calendar, with your cash, with your commitments? And can we prove it? Would you say that you desire God with tenacity, or you do God things in sort of a tipid way? If nothing else is in the schedule, I'll do some important God stuff. As you're a part of Redemption Church, or whatever church you're maybe a part of, do you come and you say, Give me an apron so I can serve, or do you say, Give me a bib so I can feed? I mean, what's kind of the mental motivation? Last, you see the world as something for you, or something for him. How do you how do you approach it? Because the big idea of covenant is God keeps pursuing for His glory and our good. And if He has pursued us, He has pursued us first for His glory, then for our good. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your grace. Your grace is the ultimate pursuer. And boy, you, you, you pursue some, some real scoundrels. And then you change them. And even in the change, we are hardly uh, perfect. We hardly deliver. I, all the more I thank you that grace is daily, that the gospel is a daily truth, that we never measure up apart from grace, but in grace we measure up fully in you. But from that, may, man, may we be pursuers of you. Because you have so richly pursued us. We thank you and love you Jesus in your name. Amen.